I'd like to invite you to take your Bible and open it with me to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22, and we'll look at a passage there in a few moments, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22. How many of you watched uh, the funeral service for Billy Graham Friday on television? How many of you watched it? Some of you did. Others of you have seen reports and um, read news accounts of the service. Monisa and I were there, and it was a very inspiring service, about 23, 2400 people under a big canvas tent reminiscent of his uh, uh, breakout revival, I guess you could say, crusade out in L.A. In the, in the 40s. And um, as you're sitting there, and you can see from the picture on the screen, you're looking toward the platform where the speakers uh, would speak from, uh, you could see behind them the library itself with the big cross in the front of it and the house that some years ago was moved to that location, the the farmhouse that he grew up in that his family lived in when he was a little boy. And um, there were several moments during the service that were moving and inspiring, convicting, and all uh, many other other emotions. But one of the, one of the things that touched me uh, the most was uh, when his grandsons were moving the, the, the casket with his body uh, from the library out to the tent for the funeral services, they were rolling it out it passed in front of that boyhood home. And it just struck me, here we are gathered in this place to celebrate his life, to worship Jesus, and um, his body's passing the home where his life began, and, and it's passing it uh, for his funeral, and beginning and end of his time on earth, and just picturing that, thinking that in my mind, and seeing that home in the background, it just, it just, it just touched me uh, because it sort of, in one, one scene, encapsulated his, his life, if you, if you will, and knowing that while that, that was his home on earth, well now he's in his eternal home, and he spent his adult life doing everything he could to prepare as many people as possible for the journey to heaven, telling them about the cross, about sin, repentance, and Jesus needing to be saved, and that they could could be saved. And he was an evangelist, the most famous evangelist of all time, preached to more, more people than anyone in human history. And when you think about that, we all, we all have, you know, very positive feelings about him and his ministry. But let, let's, let's be honest for a moment. All of us know, me, you, there, there's not a person in this room who, who's saved, who, who knows Jesus, that doesn't understand that evangelism is important. Every one of us, each and every one of us understand how important evangelism is. And we understand that, that we're supposed to do the work of an evangelist. We're supposed to share the gospel with lost people, love lost people, reach lost people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, but is it safe to say, is it accurate to say, that, say this also, that even though every person in this room who knows Jesus knows that, that most of us feel intimidated when it comes to this subject of evangelism. Is that, is that a safe statement? That most people who know Christ and go to church, when it comes to the thought of, of witnessing or, or sharing the gospel with someone who's lost, sometimes even inviting someone who's lost to the church, initiating a conversation with someone is intimidating. And we're afraid. And we don't feel confident. We don't feel competent. Let me take it a step further. I've been, a, I've been preaching now for um, over 40 years. 
And I know that for a pastor or preacher to even broach the subject of evangelism and personal witnessing in a sermon causes some people, a lot of people, I would say a majority of people to have some angst on the inside. Because you, you've heard these kind of sermons before and like I already said, you know you're supposed to do it. All of us are, but we're intimidated and we're afraid and we're hesitant. And, and, and you, some of you are already saying, I, I know I'm going to feel guilty and I just don't want to feel guilty. Uh, some of you are frustrated with yourself because you wish you had more confidence. You wish you were bolder in this, in this area. And, <clears throat> and it bothers you. <clears throat> You're not necessarily angry with me because I'm preaching on it. You just know that, that just talking about this subject is going to create some angst. And maybe you're even a little bit frustrated with yourself for feeling that way. I've been praying about this a lot. In fact, I, you know, as I approach 60, I, I spent a lot of time praying, God, what do you want me to do in ministry the next 10 years? What do you want me to lead our church to do the next 10 years? And um, still trying to figure some of that out, and I appreciate your prayers for clarity on that. But I'll, I'll tell you one thing God's clearly put on my heart is God is challenging me to challenge and help each person in this church move beyond that sense of intimidation. That one of the things God's putting on my heart is that there should never be anybody who knows Jesus that doesn't in some way have some level of confidence as well as some level of competence in helping people come to Christ. So how do you overcome that anxiety, that intimidation, that fear? And how, how do you overcome that sense of the, that, that I'll say the wrong thing, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do? Because I personally believe that, um, that everybody who knows Christ not only knows they need to do this, feels bad because they're not confident in it or they, they, they don't think they can do it. I believe that deep in your heart as a follower of Christ, there is a desire to do this. Not only do you know you need to, you want to. And there's no way one or two sermons is going to change all that. There's a lot we'll need to do in the days ahead to address that. But today, what I want us to do is take a, take a step, okay? Today and next Sunday, I, I want to help us just take a step forward because here's the thing. You know, a journey may have many steps in it, but you'll never take those many steps towards your ultimate destination if you don't take the first step. And then the second step, we move forward one step at a time. Is that not correct? So today and next week and, and maybe for the next couple of months as we have some special worship services designed to encourage you to invite people, we can take a step or two. You, you take a step or two. Can you, can you commit yourself in your heart and say, say, Pastor, say, say to the Lord Jesus Christ, I am committing myself to take a step. I, I know I may not get all the way there, but I'm going to take a step because I'm not willing to stay where I am when it comes to this subject matter. It's too important. It's too important to God. It's too important to me. It's too important to people. And I'm at least going to take a step. Can you commit in your heart and soul right now to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you will at least take a step and not stand where you are in the days to come? Can you do that in your heart? Because I don't think God wants you to stay where you are. God doesn't want you to always feel guilty and be intimidated. God wants to use you to make a difference in people's lives. And so we're going to pray and ask God to show us how and help us do that. Just take a, 
take a step on inviting people to church the next couple of months. Now, Matthew 22, if you have your Bible open, what I want us to do today and next Sunday uh, is, is talk about the, the why and the what and the how of evangelism. If you want my outline, that's it. The why, the what, and the how of being on mission with Jesus Christ, taking the gospel to people who are lost and inviting people to church and all of that, the, the why, the what, and the how of evangelism. And I want us to begin with the why. The why. Why do we do this? I'm going to give you one reason today and another reason next Sunday. The why of evangelism. Matthew 22, would you look with me please at what Jesus says here in verses 37 and following. And he answered them, he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Some time ago I, I spent a few weeks preaching on that passage. Love the, love the Lord your God with your total being. Verse 38, this is the great and foremost commandment. Jesus had been asked, what's the, what's the greatest commandment? What's the most important commandments out of these hundreds of commandments that a devout Jew tried to follow? And he said, if you really want to know, he said, the, the most important commandment, the one that is above every other commandment is love God. Love God with everything you are as a human being. Love God with everything you are as a follower of Jesus Christ. Then verse 39. And the second one, the second most important one is, is similar to it. It's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. Vertical and horizontal. And then he says in verse, verse uh, 40, on these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. He said, if you want to understand everything in the Word of God and how it applies to life, it all falls under these two commandments. Everything God says, everything He teaches, everything He expects of us falls under these two commandments. Love God and love people. Love God and love people. Can you say that with me? Right now, say it. Love God, love people. Do it again. Love God and love people. And brothers and sisters, in that loving people are not only those who go to church with us and are brothers and sisters in Christ, in that people are lost people. Love God and love people. And that includes... Lost people. See, those verses, Jesus there, therein summarizes the very heart of God. The New Testament says God is love. Jesus came to earth because of love, gave his life on the cross because of love, sends us out on mission because of love. It's all about love. He loves lost people. How can you read the Gospels and not understand that the very heart of what moved Christ and everything he did was love for people, love for lost people? As I mentioned, there were several moving moments at Dr. Graham's funeral Friday, and one that a lot of people were talking about was when his 
daughter Ruth that shared her story. Now, one thing she didn't talk about in that was that her first marriage ended in divorce because her husband had an affair. She picked the story up after that of, of, of being a single mom and lonely and all that goes with that and beginning to date a man and it moving very, very quickly. And both her parents encouraging her to slow down and wait. But as she said, she was stubborn and didn't listen and she married this man and then within 24 hours knew she had made a mistake because she was afraid of him. And other times she's told this story, she's mentioned that he was abusive. And eventually she, she, she left him. She wanted to make her way home to, to Montreat to talk to her, to her parents, but she was afraid. What would they say? How would they feel? They told her not to do it, but she did it anyway. And she talked about how little girls don't want to embarrass and disappoint their dad, and you really don't want to embarrass Billy Graham. And then she said this. Now, I just want to quote it so I get it, get it accurately. She said, we live on the side of a mountain, referring to where her parents live, at Montreat, the house that she grew up in. And then she said, as I wound myself up the mountain, I rounded the last bend in my father's driveway. And my father was standing there waiting for me. And Friday, when she got to that point, she had to, she had to pause because she choked up with tears. Then she continued, as I got out of the car... He wrapped his arms around me and said, welcome home. She added there was no shame, there was no blame, there was no condemnation, just unconditional love. And she ended her remarks by extending an invitation to anyone watching on television or in the audience that, that God receives everyone who comes to him in brokenness and humility and repentance the same way. Now, brothers and sisters, hear me. That is how our Father, how our Savior, our Lord feels about the lost people you know and love. That's how He feels about the lost people you avoid. The heart of God is love. Not just for some, but for everyone. And he says to us who follow him, love me, love the Father, love God, and love others. Be like me. The Ten Commandments, go back and read them in the book of Exodus. It's interesting. Some of you know this, but for others... This will be new. The first four commandments <clears throat> all deal with your relationship with God, how you treat God. The last six all deal with your relationships with people, how you treat people. Now think about that. Each of the Ten Commandments deal either with this vertical relationship of loving God or horizontal relationship of loving people. 
And Jesus said, if you want to understand everything God teaches, everything God commands, everything God expects, all the commandments, all the commandments, all the commandments, he said, hang under these two ideas, love God, love people. And if you want to know the why of evangelism, that is at the top of the list. When you love God, you love people. When you love people, you will love lost people. Love is the why. And have you noticed in life it's a lot easier to do something when you love somebody? How, how, how powerful that motivation is? And, and some of us need to pull back from some of the cultural issues because we're so hung up on some of this stuff that it's hardening our hearts toward lost people. And rather than loving lost people, we're learning to hate lost people. Because we need to listen to Christ more than anything else. As Billy Graham famously said in all of his sermon, the Bible says, listen to what the Word of God says, brothers and sisters. This world is hurting this world is messed up. Why? Because people are. People are lost. And what God says I need you to do is love them the way I love them. People need an authentic relationship with Christ. And they need healthy relationships with other people. That's the reason and Jesus has instructed us individually as followers of Christ and collectively as a family of faith, as a church body, to be intentional about making disciples. So in your Bible, please, open it over to Matthew 28. Just turn a few pages to Matthew chapter 28. You're already in chapter 22. Chapter 28. Let me remind you of what Jesus said just before he ascended to the Father in heaven. In Matthew 28... Verse 18, he tells us that all authority is, is his. And then in verse 19, and by the way, the, the verses are printed in your notes as well. Verses 19 and 20, he said, go therefore because of who I am, go. And do what, church? Make disciples of all the nations. The word, the word has to do with ethnicities more than political boundaries. We think about countries, that's not what it means. What it means is every group of people on the planet, wherever they are. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to do, to obey all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So he's saying go and make disciples. We, uh, we talked about the, the, the why. It's, it's, it's love. Next week we'll look at a different reason. But today, why? Love. What? What are we supposed to do? What is this work of evangelism? It's what he says here. It's making disciples. We are to make disciples. Now, the problem is when we use the word disciples and discipleship, it, 
it, people have, we, we all have these, this stereotype of what that looks like and what that means. So I want to spend some time today breaking that down to help us understand what does it really mean when Jesus says we are to go and make disciples. He, he begins by saying, because you, you love God and you love people, you go. Now, in, in the Greek of the New Testament, that word go has really two ideas associated with it. One is what we normally think of. You intentionally set out on a journey. You go somewhere. We think of it like a missionary going to a foreign country. It has the idea of you going across the street to talk to a neighbor. You go intentionally to another location. The Sunday afternoon of our outreach blitz, people got in their cars and we drove to houses in this community. We go. That's one idea that you, you intentionally set out to leave where you are and go to where someone is for the purpose of of, of being used of God to make them a disciple. <clears throat> but it also is a participle, so it has this idea of not only intentionally go somewhere, but as you are going. It means both. As you are going. In other words, in our normal routine of life, as we're going wherever we go, on our way to work, on our way to a family reunion, on our way to whatever, on our way to a bargain. As we're going through life, make disciples. His way of, of saying that, that as you're living on earth as someone who loves the Father and loves people, going through life, you're on a mission with me. Remember, it's, it's that journey from the moment of being saved to the moment, moment of being in heaven in between, we're, we're going through life, and as we go on this journey with Christ submitted to the will of God, we are, we are about making disciples. That, that is the mission of our life. Individually and collectively. Make disciples. But if we're going to do that, it's important that we know what a disciple is. Because he said, go make disciples. So let's talk about what is a disciple. Now, making a disciple, being a disciple is more than just believing in Jesus and being saved. It's more than teaching what we call you know, a discipleship class where we learn a lot of stuff. Both of those are incomplete understandings of what it means to be a disciple. Notice he says, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to observe, to do. Part of making a disciple, part of being a disciple is publicly owning Christ and becoming part of a local body. That's what baptism is. It's publicly identifying with Jesus. It's not just praying a prayer to be saved, but it's then because of the genuineness of that decision, publicly declaring your faith through believer's baptism and connecting with a local body. Teaching them to observe. So much of our discipleship historically as we teach a class and we think if people have stuff in their head, it's in their heart, or if they know content, they live it out. Discipleship is not only knowing stuff, but it's teaching people how to do the stuff. It's walking with them. It's mentoring them. It's helping them grow and become the kind of followers who are actually practicing the content of what we teach so that they are in turn on mission with Christ, making disciples. And until that happens, the process is incomplete. The disciple is incomplete. 
to help you wrap your mind around it, look at this diagram for a moment. What is a disciple? It's someone who follows Jesus Christ. You, you can't be a disciple if you're not following Jesus. That's what a disciple is. But we, we think of that typically as, as the moment of salvation. But see, when, you, when you're saved, it's not just about being saved. It's about giving your life to Jesus Christ and then following him for the rest of your life. A disciple is someone who is following Jesus Christ. A disciple is someone who is being changed. Now, when you become a believer, are you changed? Yes, you become a new creation in Christ. But guess what? We all know this. The change doesn't stop there because we are to continually be changed, right? We're growing. How can you grow in Christ without constantly changing and getting better in certain ways? Growth means change, and without change, there is no growth. So a disciple is someone who's following Christ, and as they follow him, they are continuing to be changed. And, and ultimately, that process will be concluded at the resurrection when we get a new body and we're permanently, completely, perfectly changed into perfection. But until then, it's a journey, it's a process. And on mission with Christ. Teaching people to observe, to do. Teaching people to become disciple makers. Just like you become a disciple maker, you teach the ones that God uses you to reach to become disciple makers. Jesus is looking for more than just for people to be saved. He's looking for followers who are growing and changing, who are on mission with him, helping others to also experience that life-changing relationship. It's inclusive of all, of all. That. And, and why, why is it important to understand that? Well, a couple of reasons. If we're not careful, we'll focus too much on an easy believism that doesn't call people to really follow Christ. Or we'll focus just on teaching deeper, 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 let's go deeper, deeper, deeper spiritual life classes that never result in anybody doing any evangelism. Another reason we need to understand this is we're probably not going to do a lot of disciple making if we're not in our own heart and mind trying to be that kind of disciple. Who's following Christ and saved and someone who's following Christ, I want to content, constantly grow, not just in what I know about the Bible, but in how I live it out and how I develop the fruit of the Spirit in my life, how I grow in the fullness of the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, how I grow in being on mission with Christ and, and realize that my life is part of His mission in this world, the commission that we, we call it the Great Commission, don't we? The Great Commission. But the problem is we limit the Great Commission to missionaries. Great Commission was not given to missionaries. The Great Commission was given to the church, and the church is every follower of Christ. The Great Commission was given to me and you, not just to help missionaries, but for you and me to be on mission with Christ. To see the place I work as a mission field, to see the place I go to school as a mission field, to see the neighborhood where I live as a mission field, to see the people who are a part of my club or organization or group as a mission field. 
and my purpose as a disciple is I'm following Christ and I'm growing and changing and wherever I am as I intentionally go places and as I go through life I am on mission with Christ as a disciple of Christ to make more disciples of Christ As long as you see evangelism as something that you do at certain times rather than understanding it is the heart of who we are. As long as you understand, think of discipleship as some class you teach rather than understanding that I'm constantly be becoming a disciple and helping others become disciples, we limit it and we don't do much of it. So, so praying for God to give you opportunities to invite people to church, praying for God to give you opportunities to speak to people, praying for God to give you boldness and courage, praying for God to give you the eyes to see when those opportunities are there in front of you, praying for God to give you a heart of love and compassion that wants that and feels that. To stop saying it's the church's job and it's the preacher's job and it's that person's job, but to start saying because I'm a follower of Christ who's growing and on mission, I'm a disciple, it's me, it's me, Lord, it's my job, it's who I am. I'm a disciple. And you've told me to make more disciples. Why? Because God loves and he loves people and he wants us to love him and love people. And our mission is this. So next week we'll talk about, now some of you were worried about this wristband, okay? We'll talk about the words on here. But let me talk about one as I wrap this up, the word pray. Because what I want to do is give you four how-tos, okay? Four how-tos that are part of this process of being a disciple, making disciples. And one is to pray. 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 The others, as you can see, that we're going to talk about are serve, tell, and invite. Let's talk about pray for just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 in your Bible, words on the screen and in your notes. Paul is writing and he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, what is he telling us there? He's saying the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, lost people, those who are perishing, those without Christ. Remember Jesus, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not. But have, who's the perishing? Those who are lost, those who are not believing your children and grandchildren, your nephews and nieces, your aunts and uncles, your brothers and sisters, your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends who don't know Christ, they're perishing. And the Bible says that the evil one, Satan, has veiled, blinded them to this reality. When something is veiled, it's hidden. It's like you, you put a curtain or a drape or a piece of cloth over it and you hide it. It's out of sight. And the Bible says lost people, it's as though the evil one has placed a veil over their eyes and they can't see the gospel. They're blinded to the truth. Now notice he says in the next verse, in whose case the God of this world, who's the God of this world? 
Satan, the evil one, has what? Blinded not just their eyes, but what? Have you ever wondered why lost people think the way they do? We, so, we sometimes get upset with lost people for thinking, talking, and acting like lost people. How else are they supposed to think, act, and talk? They're lost. He's blinded their minds. Why? Because he doesn't want them, notice this, he doesn't want them to see the light of the gospel. He doesn't want them to see the glory of Jesus, who's the very image of God. He, wa he wants them to stay blinded in their mind and in their eyes. And, and what does this have to do with prayer? It means that when you're praying for the people you love and care about, the people you encounter who are lost, one of the things you need to do is to pray that God will pull back the curtain. Pray that the Holy Spirit will work in their thoughts so that they begin to understand and to see clearly. Because the New Testament teaches this battle is a spiritual battle, is it not? We battle against principalities and powers. And, and brothers and sisters, our weapons are spiritual as well. And one of those weapons is prayer. We need to do a whole lot more praying for people and a whole lot less complaining about people. Especially lost people. So pray for their spiritual vision. For the Holy Spirit to help them see and think and understand. Because... The truth is, he ultimately is the only one who can convince the lost person they need Christ. You can't do it, I can't do it, but the Holy Spirit can do it. Now, he uses us, but he's the one who does it, so pray. And I, I want you to get in your mind and heart the names of people you know who are lost. I want, I want, to, I want you to, to, I'm asking you to make a list, to write down their names on a piece of paper. Who are the people in your life that are lost? And pray for them. Tonight at, our, at our, the, the gathering, our prayer and worship service at 5 o'clock, we're going to pray for lost people. Come and join us. We'll pray for the people on your heart. And some of you say, Preacher, I don't know how to pray for lost people. I, I'm not comfortable praying out loud. Well, come tonight and just listen. And you know what? As you hear other people pray for lost people tonight, you'll learn, you'll learn some things about how to pray for lost people. Take a step. Move beyond where you are. Don't allow your fear and your lack of, 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 of confidence and your lack of understanding about these things to cause you just to stand still. Take a step so you can grow and constantly be changed. Be more on mission with Christ. Come to the altar when we sing this invitation song in just a moment. Kneel here at the kneeling bench and pray for someone who's lost. Pray for yourself. 
where you are in this process of disciple, being a disciple and making disciples. Pray, pray for you to have the courage just to take, take a baby step, to take, take one step today and in the next few weeks to take a step. To come, come to the altar and, and say, I, I'm going to be part of what this church is doing and, and I want to take steps with this church. I'm going to be a part of this church family. I, I'm, I'm going to join this church. Come, come to the altar and say, Pastor, I'm not a disciple. I'm not a follower of Jesus. I've never started the journey with Jesus. Today I want to take that step and become a follower. And I look forward to all that comes with it. Come to Brother Jamie or me and say, today I want to take that step to follow Christ. So let's stand and sing together and you come right now.